0: Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. The the scene and the setting is the post-death, post-resurrection of Jesus Christ and right before His ascension. The very end of Matthew 28, which is the very end of Matthew's gospel. And in this passage here, which is just going to serve as our introduction to our sermon text, What we find here is the third pillar of the ministry of Redeemer Church, and that is discipleship. And so let's read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here you see the commission of making disciples. This is the main imperative the main verb, the main command in this section, make disciples of all the nations. You see the authority of the discipleship mandate, where Jesus says, "All authority has been given to me." How, how much authority do you have, Christ? I have all authority. There is there's, there's no higher, no better, no stronger authority than what I have. And this, on this authority, I say to you, make disciples. Well, now that, that should um, cause our antennas to raise. Regarding this issue of of discipleship, because there is no higher authority who's giving this command, and the command is given to make disciples. You see the geography of the mandate. You see how you're to go to all the world. Alright? Go everywhere and make disciples. Don't constrict yourself to one place or to one certain people, but make disciples everywhere. You see the activity of discipleship. Many of you know what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner, a follower. One who looks upon the Lord Jesus, learns who He is, what He has done, how He has lived, and then you pattern your life after the life of Jesus and after the teaching of Jesus and after the sacrificial nature of Jesus' life. That's what a disciple is, a learner and follower of Jesus. Then you see the the result of discipleship. You see baptism, and you see teaching and instruction and obedience. Look, these are what disciples do. Disciples are baptized into the church. Disciples learn from others who teach them the way of the gospel. And disciples obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of their life. That's what disciples do. That's who disciples are. Then you see the comfort of discipleship at the very end where the authoritative Christ, the chief disciple maker, says, Lord, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the primary discipleship passage in the New Testament. This is where we get our marching board for our third pillar of ministry, the Great Commission. And we will likely come back to this passage at some point in this, um, ministry, in this uh, sermon series that we have on our four pillars. But to whet your appetite and to show you the origin, I wanted to bring you to Matthew 28. now, with that, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, where we were sitting the rest of our time here this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. This morning I want to give you seven aspects of discipleship. Seven aspects of discipleship. We're going to see this from Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Let's read that again. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. The third pillar of the ministry of Redeemer Church is discipleship. And by that, what we mean is we are committed to train people in faithful gospel application. We are committed to train people in faithful gospel application. And that is precisely what Paul is telling the church at Colossae to do. All right? Is to train one another in faithful gospel application. And so he gives us seven aspects of discipleship in this passage. The very first aspect of, of discipleship here is that discipleship is focused on Christ. Discipleship is focused on Jesus Christ. Notice that it says, Him we preach. We understand the context here is clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in just a moment. But what he is saying is we proclaim Jesus Christ. Him we preach. And this is a consistent theme of Paul throughout all of his letters that he writes. In 1 Corinthians, he says, we preach Christ crucified. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Philippians 1, he's actually addressing an issue where there are some people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition and out of jealousy and envy of Paul's ministry. And then there are others who are preaching Christ out of good ambition and godly ambition and gospel ambition. Listen to what he says. You would think that he would say, I wish those guys with selfish ambition would stop preaching Christ and those who have good ambition would continue to do so. But that's not what he says. Listen, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I will rejoice. Because for Paul, the most significant part of Christianity is that Jesus Christ will preach and nothing else. All right? There are a lot of things that come along with the preaching of Christ. And there are a lot of things that come after the preaching of Christ. But there is nothing more important and there is nothing more primary than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now I want you to look down at your Bible. I want you to walk with me. Let's see this Christ and what he wants us to say about this Christ and how what we are to learn about Christ in this discipleship process. Look down beginning at verse 13. God, the Father, here, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Who is Christ? He is the Son of the Father's love. In other words, he is the beloved Son of God. Verse 14. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Who is Christ? He is the Redeemer. He is the one who has taken us out of the bondage of sin and into freedom. Freedom in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 14. Uh, verse 15. Notice, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We want to ask, what does God the Father look like? Just look at God the Son. Because God the Son is the image of God the Father. If you see Jesus, God the Son, you see God the Father in in essence. Look at verse 15. Again, He is the preeminent one over all creation. There is none higher. There is none better. There is none more supreme. There is none more set apart than Jesus Christ. Verse 16. By Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. Who is Jesus? He is the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 17. Not only is He the creator of heaven, The, the, the earth would fall off its axis and it would the, it would go away from the sun and get closer to outer darkness and we would all disintegrate. But Jesus Christ is the sustainer of both heaven and earth and holds everything in its place. Verse 18. He is the head of the body. The church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things He may have the preeminence. He is the head of the body. He is fully God. He is the great peacemaker. Notice in verse 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. There's His Godness, His deity. And then by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. How is He going to do that? By Him. Right? By Christ. He is the Son of God, the Sovereign King, the Redeemer, the image of the invisible God, the Preeminent One, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Head of the Body, He's fully God, He is the Great Peacemaker. This is who Christ is. And this is who we preach. This is who we declare. Now, look back at verse 28. It says, Him we preach. We see that the ministry is Christ. What does this word preach mean? It means to announce throughout, to proclaim far and wide Jesus Christ. That's what the meaning of this is so we're not whisperers, we're not silent people, we are people who announce far and wide and high and low, and even from the announce of the the, uh, rooftop, it's in the present tense, it means we we constantly do it, we we are an ongoing preaching, preachers of Jesus Christ, We we don't have seasons in which we preach Christ, and years in which we preach Christ, and other years we don't, and decades we preach Christ, and decades we don't. Ongoing, every day, every month, every year, we preach Christ. And then notice the, the, the uh, person, the first person plural in verse 28. We preach. Not I preach, not a few of us preach, but we preach. We all preach. All Christians preach Christ. This is a team effort. This is a church effort. We all get in and we do this, and we do it regularly, and we announce throughout. We proclaim far and wide the person and word of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm teaching you guys this this, uh, Bible study principle to ask yourself the question, not just what does it say in the text, but also what does it not say? And I ask the question when we look at this very first phrase here, and we're learning that discipleship is focused on Christ, I ask the question, what does this not say? And if you look down at the text, it does not say, we preach morality. We preach ethics. We preach rules. We preach regulations. And let's keep rules, man. you know Oxford, Alabama would be a really neat place to live? All right, it'd be sweeter than what it than what it is, and that's really good. But the only thing about that is it does nothing for our relationship with God, right? God said in Leviticus nineteen two, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." In Matthew five forty eight, Jesus said, "Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." And what we're learning on Thursday nights in our evangelism is that none of us are holy, and none of us are perfect, and when we go down the Ten Commandments, and we ask ourselves the question, you know, God says do not lie, have you lied? Yes. God says do not steal, have you stolen? Yes. God says do not commit adultery, have you committed adultery? Yes. God says have no other God before me. Have you ever had a god before a God? Yes. And you know, most of us have broken all of the Ten Commandments. Now we could, for the sake of having a better society, we could say, well, we've broken them, but let's continue to try to keep them as best as we can. And if we did that, hey, that would be wonderful. Because even if we did break them, we would still get along better and love one another better. But God says, if you have broken one of my laws, you are guilty of all of it. Listen, y'all, there, there's really two ways to get ahead. The two ways: human achievement or divine knowledge. And let me tell you, if you can be perfect. If you can be holy, you go to heaven. You will. The problem with that is no, nobody's ever done Nobody. Ever. Except one. Right? The God-man. Jesus Christ, who we just read about in Colossians 1. He's the only one. And so he is the God-man who accomplished all righteousness. He fulfilled all righteousness. He is the one that we have to look to. He is the one that we have to believe in. It is his life that we have to account for our righteousness or else we have none. That's why Paul said he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We give him our sin, our immorality, our non-ethics living, our non-rules following selves, and he gives us all of his righteousness and all of his perfection and all of his holiness. It's the great exchange. We give him righteousness. We give him our sin. Listen, y'all. As a group of disciples, people who are committed to real discipleship, we have to preach Christ. We have to preach him because if we don't preach Christ, we preach other things besides Christ, or along with Christ, Christ plus morality, or Christ plus ethics, or Christ plus rules and regulations. Then we're missing the whole boat, and we're making people Twice the sons of hell than they already are. I'll give me an illustration. I'll think, about, uh, think about the death and after death experience of two individuals. Goliath and King Tut. We know that Goliath's body was severed. Somewhat graphic if you read 1 Samuel 17 and 18. I apologize for smaller children, but for Body is severed. Part of it is left in the old, you know, wilderness battleground, you no know, telling what happened to it. And then part of the body is taken to Jerusalem and buried it around. Just, uh, just think about the after-death burial experience of life. And think about what we know about King Tut, pharaoh of Egypt, who was placed in a a royal Tomb, and then placed into a royal case, and then wrapped with royal linen garments, and then placed a, like a gold mask over just so to the point where his body, oh, and, and ointment, and perfumes, and everything is, are put on it, to the point where, 3,000 years after his burial, he's still in existence. Right? His body is... So you have Goliath's burial, you have Goliath's you have King Tut's after death experience. And if you want to kind of draw a parallel, you have immoral is that Redeemer Church would be known in the community of Oxford as a group of people who preach Jesus. They may not know a lot about our church. I was sitting at Starbucks late last night, and I had one of the uh, the gentlemen who was sitting beside me go to RedeemerOxford.org. I said, I'd like for you to check out our website and tell me about the appearance and the clarity of it and the simplicity of it. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, And he, he gave me good feedback. He was encouraged by it. He said, I, I couldn't really notice what denomination you're affiliated with. I couldn't really notice, you know, what, what churches you're affiliated with, or, you know, that sort of thing. You know, in my mind, I thought, okay, well, we might want to think about that. But also in my mind, I said, that's okay as long as he sees on our website that we preach Christ, that Christ is exalted, all right? Because that's what I want our church to be known. That's what Paul wanted the church to be known. So, discipleship preaches Christ. Alright, these next are going to flow up more quickly and smoothly, but let's get to the remaining six. Number two, discipleship involves corrective instruction. Look down at the text, we're just walking straight through, linearly, this passage. Can we preach warning every man? So, it involves corrective instruction. This verb carries the idea of admonishing. Some of your versions actually say admonishing every man. Some of your verses say exhorting every man. It means to re- instruct in regards to belief and behavior. And it's corrective in nature. So you are believing this one thing that is false. Disciples come in, disciple makers come in and say, hey listen that that's not exactly correct. Let's, let's, let's turn this thing in the direction of the Lord. Or person is, is believing or, or living in the wrong way and say, look, there is a better way. There is a more godly way. Let's turn the, the boat of your life in this direction to line up with the ways and the will of God. And listen, this is what we do. We were unbelievers and we warn believers. That's part of this passage. Alright? What do we warn unbelievers about? We, are, we warn unbelievers about the emptiness of their chosen way. Right? You have chosen a way other than God's way. And the end result of that way is death, judgment, wrath, eternity separated from the love and mercy of God. And so we want that. We all did that in Acts. you ever read Acts chapter 17, he goes before all these philosophers, and, and uh, he had been in the city and looked at all the different idols and all the different temples. And he says, listen, listen, I even saw a temple, a shrine that said to the unknown God. And because Paul knew that it is our job to warn unbelievers of their way. He said, listen, let me proclaim to you this God that you don't know who you worship in ignorance. And he goes on to preach Christ to them. And he says, he says that God is declaring all men everywhere to repent, to repent and to come to Christ. And so he is is warning them, he is correcting their philosophy, he is correcting their idolatry. We also correct believers, right? We correct believers about doctrine and life and theology and priorities. The church in America has become a group of people who wear nice clothes and drive nice cars and come to a nice building and sing nice songs preach nice sermons and say nice things and everything about it is nice. But it's also become a group of people who are unwilling to correct one another, who are unwilling to instruct one another in the way of God. Why is that? That's our culture. Our culture is so pluralistic, it's so divided. We don't want to step on anybody's toes because we may offend them or we may differ from them. You've been reading a book called Shepherd Leader right now, and the author talks very clearly and, and uh, very poignantly about this very issue. And, and the thing is, is that our culture resists correction because our culture resists authority. And our culture resists human authority. Why? Because our culture resists divine authority. And we know that human authority comes from authority. And so we resist any human authority that comes into our lives. Hey, look, just, just go on the internet, read the news, read Facebook, read Twitter. Everything is about rebellion against the institute of authority. And it doesn't matter whether it's the government. It doesn't matter whether it's the church. We resist it. Why? Because it's an expression
1: of our resistance
0: against the divine authority. And as Christians, guys, we can't do that. We have to say that God has placed authority structures in our lives for our good, our edification, our benefit, our discipleship. I grew up playing sports. Lots of them. And I had coaches who were more than eager to correct me. do you guys are um, had that experience as well, but I, uh, I jotted down a few things that I remember here. <clears throat> Limbaugh! Get rid of the ball quicker! Limbaugh! Don't throw off your back foot! Limbaugh! I've been corrected my whole life in the sports arena. But it doesn't come very naturally in our society. We're scared to correct. We're scared to admonish. We're scared to warn. And so what it plays out to be is we say things like, well, my neighbor's from up north. She's made it real clear. She doesn't want to talk about spiritual things. Or, you know, my brother is Christian. But he is one of those health, wealth, and prosperity guys. Honestly, I just want to talk about faith because I'm, I'm just going to get right that it, but it be an obvious But Paul said, we more every man. We correctly instruct every man. Why? That they might become more like Christ. They might become complete. Discipleship involves corrective instruction. And I will tell you, if we become who we're supposed to become, we will lovingly, gently, carefully correct one another and one another in the way of God. Number three, discipleship involves formative instruction. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. He says we teach every man in all wisdom. Paul is big on teaching. Christianity, listen, is a teaching religion. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a what? You know? A teacher. Alright? He says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and you know what third is? Teachers. Teachers. And then Paul goes on to make these commands in his letter. Listen to what he says. Command and teach these things. Teach and exhort these things. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also, right John? As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says to the women, he says, Old women, teach what is good. You know, there's a, a ladies' a discipleship time that's, uh, I think, this week, right, Mary? Right? And, and fellowship and food and enjoyment and pray are good. But you know, when ladies gather together, instruction, Teaching, because that's what God has called us to do in order to become disciples. Look, this is the this is really the downward spiral of the American church, and in particular the church in the South, the Bible Belt, is for whatever reason, and I don't know all the reasons, the, the Bible Belt area has become a church culture that does not teach. What, what you find is you find a preacher who has about five different sermons and uses a different text every Sunday to preach those five terms. And then ultimately what happens is it's a gospel presentation, and an imitation at the end, but the essence of it is the same, and it's basically the same message over and over. Sunday school becomes a social hour. Sunday night becomes a focus on music. Wednesday night becomes a focus on whether it be fellowship or, or a prayer request and prayer. And, and everything, everything is in except teaching. And teaching is dwindled down and dwindled down so there's no instruction. Listen, when we don't go deep, when we don't go down, when we can't dig a, a huge well of, of, of godly theology, then we can't go very high in our worship. Alright? The lower the depth of our teaching, uh, or the, uh, the more shallow the depth of our teaching, the more uh, shallow our worship will be. And that's why I'm to focus on teaching. Spiritual ignorance is one of the biggest problems in our community. People believe in the Bible, but they don't know what it says, and they don't know what it means, and therefore they don't know where the power applies. Redeemer Church, we're committed to being a church who is going to teach, who is going to instruct. Extrad- We want everyone, it doesn't matter whether it's Thursday nights, it doesn't matter whether it's Sunday mornings, it doesn't matter whether it's Redeemer's Kids, or whether we're meeting in one of our homes for Bible study. We want people to leave knowing more about God, more about the Scriptures, more about their lives, more about their souls than what they do when they walk in. Because we are a teaching faith, a teaching religion. I can tell you this, I was once a spiritually ignorant Christian. I was in my mid-twenties. And I I really had no idea how to study the Bible. Therefore, I had really no idea how to live out my Christian life with any skill, with any maturity. And a man came alongside of me who knew more than I did, who was more mature than I was, and he said, hey, come meet with me. And I met with him for a year. He not only taught me how to live, he taught me how to study the Bible. Not only he taught me how to study the Bible, he taught me how to apply the Bible. And over and over and over, as he met and he taught and I learned, I became confident that I could be a Christian who could read this word, I could pray through this word, and then I could go out and apply this word with skill, and I could even help others do so. This is the pattern for discipleship. And listen, this is what I would love Redeemer Church to be. I would love Redeemer Church to be a church where you, as a Christian, find someone who knows more than you and is more mature than you, and somehow hang out with them. Find someone who is less mature than you and who knows less than you do and somehow find a way to hang out with them. And here you are. You have this relationship where you are a a disciplee and a discipler and we have this kind of synergy going on where we're learning and we're teaching. We're learning and we're teaching. We're learning and we're teaching. So, discipleship involves formative instruction. We instruct people in a way of the Lord. Number four, discipleship involves full participation full participation. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. We have the word every three times. Back to back to back. Paul is really big on getting everybody involved. Alright? He wants everyone involved in Christian discipleship. Nowhere do you read, I've read Paul's letters lots of times, and nowhere do you read him say, hey listen, try to get 70% participation in your service. Maybe 50% you go to Bible study. Hopefully you get 25% of the membership who actually pursue holiness. Oh, those would be good numbers. He never says anything like that. Except he says things like, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what we want a Redeemer. We want everyone who names the name of Christ to depart from iniquity and to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Robbie and I, uh, a few months ago, met with a pastor over in Birmingham, and we were asking him some questions about their church. their church plant, probably about five years old, I can't remember exactly. But we were talking about our third pillar, discipleship, and we were talking about the wisdom of making discipleship its own pillar, or if we could just kind of put that under fellowship, because that's, you know, really naturally where it belongs. And I asked the pastor, I said, how... how how many people in your church are actually in a discipleship kind of relationship that are actually kind of committed to this thing where they're meeting with people and praying with people and being accountable to people and learning from people? I was stunned at his answer. He said, everyone. He said, everyone? He said, everybody, he said, everybody who's at our church is in a discipleship relationship. He wasn't saying that. We need to be taught. We need to learn. Ah. It gave me great hope and great motivation that there is a church that is seeking not to be the status quo where you've kind of got the special ops, the special forces Christians who are really into this. I and then mean, you've kind of got the middle of the road who are kind of into it and kind of not. I and then mean, you've kind of got the bottom dwellers who just kind of come to church and, and leave and kind of go and do their own thing. Or you have a local church who is seeking after discipleship. And I think that we do want to be like that. We want to see discipleship. We want to be learners, and learned, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it involves full participation, not just a select. Right. Number five, discipleship has one goal. If we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul's aim for us all is maturity. Practical righteousness. Here in in the New King James it says perfection. It means ultimate maturity. To come to Christ's likeness. Look over at chapter 4 verse 12. Because he reiterates this in a very cool way. He's talking about one of the Christian servants. Epaphras. And he says listen. Epaphras. Who is one of you. A slave of Christ. He greets you. And he is always laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. The pastor wasn't praying for decisions. He was praying for disciples. The pastor wasn't praying for converts. He was praying for committed Christians. He wasn't praying just for people to walk an aisle and make a decision or pray a prayer. He was praying that every single individual in the church of Colossae would be perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. That they may be presented before the Lord one day as a mature man, as a mature one in Christ. I did a survey of Paul's letters. Since we're right in the midst of Paul's letters, I did a survey of Paul's letters from Romans all the way to my This is what you find Paul 1. Out of believers, what he's desiring in believers. I took the themes of every book. I want you to be doctrinally sound. I want you to be holy. I want you to be sacrificial in nature. I want you to be full of grace. Practice your position. Be joyful in Christ. Trust in the Lord. Serve in the church. Comfort one another. Lead one another. Battle in spiritual warfare. Be godly and forgive one another and be useful. We are one That's Romans right there in a nutshell. I and mean, that's what it means to be perfect in Christ, being a mature man. Who do we see this development in? Probably uh, the most clearly in the New Testament. I think it's Peter. What about Peter? Here he is, arrogant, individualistic, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? And and, and so uh, he gets humiliated the night that Jesus is betrayed. He is humbled. And he then is corrected and instructed and and forgiven by the Lord Jesus and in commission. Be my lamb, Shepherd my flock. tend my flock, Jesus said on the shore. And what does Peter turn into? He turns into a man who goes throughout the whole Roman empire preaching this glorious gospel. He is willing to be instructed. Hey, he was still in in the wrong about Jews and Gentiles. He was ignorant about these things. But the Lord continued to teach him and he was willing to learn up to the point that in 1 Peter chapter 5 the arrogance is gone. The the presumption is gone. In 1 Peter chapter 5 he actually says, to my fellow elders, he doesn't call himself the supreme apostle. He doesn't call himself the Pope as some would believe. He doesn't call himself all the great and mighty things. He actually says, to my fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God. It's tender, it's warm, it's humble, it's loving. Why? Because he has been mature. Day after day, week after week, he has instructed, con- warned, corrected, admonished, helped. Encouraged, comforted, all the way to now, when he writes through Peter, he is a mature man. And he is ready to be presented before the Lord. It will not be too long after that that he's through the Bible. tells us upside down. he, in fact, is able to see the Lord face to face. Your goal in a in, in ministry is maturity. Your goal for your life is maturity. Your goal for other Christians is maturity. Okay, number six. Discipleship requires hard work. To this end, I labor. I strive, he says. I'm working hard. I'm working to the point of exhaustion. I fight. I contend to the point of maximum effort, he is saying. You have kind of two, two words, two verbs that are working here. He's talking about working hard to exhaustion. And he's talking about fighting and contend to the point of absolute maximum effort. Why is he doing this for well, the perfection and maturity of the saints? I, uh, I remember in the seminary, a number of my professors were, were hard work. There's one in particular. I remember we had a, a group of uh, students who commuted down to the seminary every day. We wanted to save money, save gas, and do a fellowship. But we had to leave really early because if you didn't leave before 6 o'clock a.m., then you'd get caught in traffic and you could be there an hour, hour and a half. But if you leave by anywhere between 5:30 and 6, then uh, you're smooth sailing all the way. And so we would leave around 5:30. Sometimes we'd be really earlier, depending on what our responsibilities were and what we needed to get done homework-wise prior to class. But it was not uncommon for us to arrive at seminary, and one of my professors, who was a Hebrew professor, his truck would be right up on the building. And he looked up on the second floor, his office light would be on. And he would be working and toiling at grading papers and preparing lessons. And when I was in his Hebrew Exegesis class, I remember picking up my second Hebrew Exegesis paper. It was 17 pages long, as I recall. And on every page, red ink looked like it had been spilled. <laughs> Like a different red pen had been used and then busted on it. And it. I mean, there was just so much writing about what was wrong with my paper. I remember one comment that he made at the bottom for equipment that I had. Um, he said, what deal right the trash sheet did you get this from? Depending on where you do it. I'm telling you, I brought that paper on the Jane and she looked at it and she said, wow. I said, what do you think I made on this paper? And she said, i have made like 92. But the man was so committed to me being a proper exegete of Scripture that he found, well, he probably wouldn't light on me, but he found so much to correct and admonish and help me with. And he did this for every single student. It's unbelievable. And even though he was in class, the man was always prepared. He was always ready to give us a two-hour lecture on some Hebrew exegetical aspect, All right? But then you add on top of that, he was also my advisor, and then he was also a counselor of mine that I would meet with him, and he was teaching Sunday school, and going exegetically through the Psalms, and he was going on a mission trips, and I looked at this man, I'm not going to say his name, I don't want to take away his reward in heaven, but I just look at it. Here's a man who is absolutely committed to presenting other people perfect in Christ, mature in Christ, This is sacrificial effort, this is loving effort, but he wants to present the body of Christ as mature and as complete. And it takes hard work. He worked hard to the point of exhaustion, to the point of maximum effort. But I tell you, I, I benefited from it. I do not want to stand in the pulpit before you on any given Sunday and do a halfway good job and be flippant with the text and maybe look up a few things and say, well I think it means this or I declare that it means this but it really doesn't because I have a man who has who has poured himself into me for me to be presented complete and perfect in Christ. And I want for myself and you that you may be perfect and complete in Christ. And I want you for yourself and the people who would be perfect and, complete and complete in Christ and it takes hard work. Mm-hmm. Finally, number seven. Discipleship is a powerful work of Christ. Let's read the passage through one more time. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me, my Lord. Discipleship is a powerful work of Christ. If this truth right here, at the very end, was not a reality, discipleship of the New Church would be a lost cause. We would attempt to do discipleship, and we would roll up our sleeves, and we would work hard, and we would strive, and we would stay up late, and we would get up early, and we would go to see this brother, and we would drive a minister to this sister, and we would teach, and we would warn, and we would admonish, but you know we would be doing it all in the power of our own flesh. You know what would have then? We would be tired and exhausted and burnt out Frustrated because none of us are becoming as godly as we thought we should be. But listen, you hear about the term burnout a lot in life. And even if you're around Christians, you hear the term burnout among Christianity. I'm just burnout. Listen, if there is something to working yourself to exhaustion and getting tired and needing the sabbatical and needing to rest in the Lord. But I'm not sure burnout. The proper word, because if you're working in the power of Christ, if you're laboring in the strength that the Holy Spirit provides you, you don't get burned out, you get tired, you get exhausted, you need rest, but you're ready to go for the Lord because you've been laboring and striving, not in your own strength, but in the strength that God provides. That's why He has given you His Spirit, that's why He has provided you. Word. He is providing you strength and, 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 and might and power so that you won't do it in your own flesh, but that you'll do it in the, the strength that God provides. You now I've, I've actually had circumstances before where I had no idea how I was going to get this ministry done. Or how I was going to do this back to back to back to back. How can I go here and do this and go here and preach this and go here and counsel this person? Oh, I want to find this that it be my God. It is amazing. Well, not only in that position, I think the Lord works more mightily in him than if I prepared for 20 hours or something apart from the power of the Spirit. That's the way the Lord works. For His powerful work in him. Listen, if you're living or if you're trying to live a Christian life in your own power, if you're trying to do all the right things. Make all the right decisions, say all the right words, lead your family in all the right ways. But you're not dependent on the power of Jesus Christ. Stop that. Tap into the power source, which is the Spirit of Christ. It is the Word of God. Plead for this power. And God will fill you with His strength. Cry out to Him and call on Him, and He will provide you. Seven aspects of discipleship. It is focused on Christ. It involves correction. It is supported to the destruction. It is, requires full participation. It has one goal. It requires hard work, but it is to be done with the powerful work of Jesus Christ and not our own. May the Lord make the Redeemer Church a disciple making church for His glory and for the making of disciples. So let's pray.